tonight, if you have your Bibles, if you would join me in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, we are working through a study through the book of Corinthians, and uh, we come to a wonderful uh, study tonight that I trust will be edifying and encouraging to you as it has been to me. And so 2 Corinthians 6, when you find your place, if you would stand in honor of God's word, we're going to read verse 1 down to verse number 10. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, We then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted in the day of salvation. I have secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no offense. If you'd read verse 3 with me. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. He goes on to say, but in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience and affliction and necessities and distresses and stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watching and fasting and pure by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love and feigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand, on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Father, your word is such a joy to come to. It's a refuge for our souls. And so tonight we pray that you would grant us the peace of God that passes all understanding as we cast our heart and mind upon you. For you say, great have peace, have they that love thy law, and nothing would offend us. I pray that you would help us to understand this subject of offense and grant us wisdom. Help us to live without offense, Lord, that the ministry be not hindered. For the glory of God, we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, man, you may be seated this evening. Well, tonight, I'm going to be looking at a message I've entitled, Ministering Without Offense. Ministering Without Offense. Paul has... And to bring us into context of where we are here in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, uh, he has declared that those who are faithfully ministering the gospel are co-laborers with Christ. That is a magnificent thought. Um, he tells us in verse 1, we then as workers together with him, and the him there is God. He had told them back in chapter number 5, verse 19 and 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ and we are beseeching the lost in place of Christ, bringing people to Christ. We're laboring along with God. And then he warned them in verse number two to not receive the gospel in vain. Uh, verse one and in verse two, he says, I beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. It's possible to receive the gospel with no effect. And to do so would make it a superficial gospel and not an actual gospel salvation. It's possible to have an intellectual faith, but not a genuine faith. You ever known that to be true of someone? They could tell you the right information, but they could never live it because they didn't really have it. They were about 18 inches from salvation, from their head to their heart. They knew what the Bible says. They just never truly surrendered to Christ as Lord. And, and so Paul is pleading with them as he labors alongside the Lord, saying, make sure 
that you've examined yourself, that you're a believer. Don't receive the gospel in vain. He tells them in chapter 13, verse 5, to examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, prove your own self. He says, know ye not your own self, so that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. So Christians should examine themselves. And we saw this last time. We navigated through an entire sermon just looking at the danger of a vain gospel. Now here in verse 2, Paul quotes Isaiah 49, verse 8, warning the Corinthians to make sure their salvation, to make sure they understand it has been made available to them and that they need to receive that. Now tonight I want to look at verse number uh, 3, which stands for us as a great warning. Uh, because after Paul highlights the magnitude of the work that the believer is laboring alongside of God in, uh, that souls uh, are on the line and at stake, verse 3 through, thir- three through 10 tell us how the minister is to represent the Lord Jesus Christ as a laborer for God. He first tells them what they are not to do in verse 3, and then he tells them what they are to do in verse 4 through 10. And so here tonight, we're going to be looking specifically at verse 3, which is so tremendous of a warning that it's going to take the entire sermon to cover. The church is effective and powerful and victorious as long as it is unified. Unity is central to an effective marriage, effective home, and an effective church body. And John 17 is one of my favorite chapters. It is a chapter that is a prayer that Jesus makes. The entire chapter is Jesus praying. And in that chapter, five times, he prays for their unity. If Jesus, in one chapter, prays for something five times, do you think we should take note of that? Look at verse 21 of John 17 on the screen there. If you haven't turned there, it says this that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and that the glory which thou gavest to me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me as thou hast loved them." I mean, that is a tremendous section where he is praying intensely for the unity of the believers. Unity allows bodies to thrive. You ever wake up and you've slept on your arm? You ever done that? And you're like, who's on me? You know, one time I slept on both arms. Yeah, what do you do? I'm like swinging them things around. I'm like, I'm not, somebody's holding me. I don't know who it is. And doesn't it feel like 100 pounds? You're like, good night. This arm is heavy. And you flop it over to hit your wife, and then she punches you. You know, it's all a mess. But uh, you need your body to be awake and alert. You need it to be able to respond. You need to be able to communicate with the rest of you to be effective. And if If you don't have that, you know, the older I've gotten, I get more cramps in my legs at night. Nobody told me that was coming. Anybody else deal with that? (laughs) I had a cramp in my foot last night. I'm like, are you serious? You know, and you know, I don't need to go too far. You know, you do take more bathroom breaks at night. So you're like, I got to get up and walk this thing off anyway. So, you know, it's like, man, you're, you you just, age is catching up. And uh, you guys are like, ah, you're young. Yeah, but I got four daughters. So I'm actually 108 years in daughter years. You know, there's doggy years and daughter years. So I'm the oldest in the room. But you need your body to have unity, to be able to be effective. You know, 
geese fly at like 75 or 70 to 80% faster when they fly in V formation. It's a tremendous reality. And there's a lead goose that flies up there. And when that, when that one gets tired, it'll fall back and another one takes the lead. And it just continues to fly in such a V formation to allow them to work off of a draft. And so it is so with the body of Christ. You know, Satan knows Mark 3.24 you know, when they said Jesus is Beelzebub and he casts out demons by because he's a prince of demons, Satan knew the reality of, of, of the foolishness of that argument. When Jesus said in Mark 3.24, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Paul told the church at Corinth they needed to forgive someone who committed a great sin. And at the end of that, he says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What he's saying is, when you have someone who's offended you and you don't forgive them, you're giving place to Satan. Satan gets into your home or church or relationship. So tonight I want to look at a message I've entitled, Ministering Without Offense. And, and that's, that's really the thought on my first point is ministering without offense. So what does the word offense mean? The word offense is a Greek word proskope, and it means to be an occasion of stumbling to trip someone else up. It would be the idea of leading them into error or into sin. You know, there are, there are times we're going to offend people for right things. Is that true? I mean, I mean we live in a culture today that if you stand on the truth, uh, you're going to be offensive. Um, Paul was not afraid to offend people over preaching the gospel. It wasn't truth, he was saying, that we need to avoid. It wasn't truth that needed to be modified. And 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews, a what? What's that mean? That means that when you preach the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again, that you are a sinner separated from God and cannot come to the Father except through the Son, that you must humble yourself, repent, and recognize that you have no value on your own. There is no worth that you can create. There is no salvation that you can make. You are 100% dependent on Jesus to save you. That is a stumbling block to self-righteous religionists. Judaism choked on that meat. Jesus Christ called himself in scripture a stumbling stone and rock of offense. So it's important to know that as we minister, truth will offend. And you are not violating, verse 3, by offending people with truth. 1 Peter 2.8 says of Christ, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word. And why? Being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So it wasn't truth that Paul said should be avoided to keep from offending others, but how you minister, and your personal life must be lived out in such a way that would not hinder the gospel. David 
Guzik said, Paul was willing to do almost anything to make sure he gave no offense and anything, but he would not allow his style of ministry to offend anyone, even though the gospel he preached would. 2 Corinthians 6.3 says, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. The phrase there, that, is a purpose clause. And the purpose Paul avoided living in any way to offend people was to protect the ministry from being discredited in some way. He sought to live in such a way that the message would never be hindered by the messenger. That the deliverer of the truth would not hinder that truth. Anybody ever seen that happen? Where someone may be bold as a witness. They're not afraid to tell others about Jesus Christ. They're not afraid to talk about the church or Jesus or salvation. But their life was hindering the message. Their life didn't line up with the message they were preaching. Let me give you uh, nine ways Christians can offend others. Nine ways that Christians' life can offend others. Um, I was just thinking about these today, and and just as I pondered through the Scriptures and and life, you know, I, I, 42 years old, be coming on 43 soon, and, you know, just spent the last 20 years of my life in church planting. We started a church 20 years ago in Chillicothe, and that church has grown up like this. And then coming on now 14 years ago, um, starting Lighthouse, I've, I've seen the, the, the joy of, of so many lives being changed for Christ and people being saved, families put together, just, just such wonderful things. Uh, more than more than I ever deserved. I did. I didn't deserve. I don't deserve to pastor Lighthouse. I don't deserve the the fruitfulness and joy of seeing that fruit. And it's not because of me. It's just by God's grace. I know pastors that are much better pastors than I am who labor in fields and they have churches that may not grow past fifty people, but they've labored faithfully. and And so I'm so thankful for all those blessings. And I never want to want to um, minimize that. But, but it, is, it, is, it has been a heartbreaking thing also as a pastor because uh, to see offenses, to see people hurt and hurting one another at times. Um, sometimes I've hurt people uh, unintentionally. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, when you're a pastor and there's, you know, we have 660 people here Sunday, there's going to be somebody, I'm sure, that took something the wrong way. There's going to be somebody that... You know, uh, it's, it's, it's possible to miss someone. It's possible to not notice that somebody was not there. Uh, you know, and we have, we have a church that's like a family, and it just, people minister organically and, and call and reach out. But, but sometimes as a pastor, you just miss stuff. And uh, that's, that's, to me, honestly, the hardest thing I ever deal with as a pastor, just, just my own failures in that. Uh, but it's... Um, the, the, the reality of offense is, is in the church, and uh, I am so thankful for the unity that Lighthouse enjoys. We, we are a church that if, if this is the only church you've been in, you are not in, in, in a typical church. I mean, this is, this is a blessing. Some of you have grown up in churches where it's like, man, you were used to church divisions, church splits, church fights. When we came here to start Lighthouse, the first thing people were asking me is, what church did you split off of? I said, well, praise God, we didn't split. We're actually birthed. <laughs> you know, we, we, we're actually doing it the Bible way. This is the Acts 13 model. So, uh, 
and, and, and that's how God has ordained it. But let me give you some ways that Christians can offend others. First of all, fighting for some personal freedom at the expense of others. This happened in the early church. Um, there, were, there were areas known as gray areas. Now, when you get into gray areas, and I've preached multiple sermons on gray areas. We've done lessons on gray areas. The interesting thing about gray areas is most of the people that you teach that to don't feel like it's a gray area. And as they mature, they begin to understand these are some gray areas. But when you get into specifics, they're like, oh, that's a white area. That's not even an issue. Or somebody's like, oh, that's a black area. That's a, that's a, that's a moral in a life. Like, you can't do that. And um, so, so what, th- this, is, this is something you need to understand. You could have something in life. To one person, it could be sinful. And to somebody else, it may not be sinful. That's a true truth. I was going to say truism, and somebody's going to think that's not in the dictionary, but truism is. So, but it is a truth. There are things that for some people may not be sinful, but for somebody else, because if in your heart you believe that to be wrong and you violate your conscience, then you are sinning against Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 8, 9, Romans 14, I could go on. But in the early church, there was an issue of eating meat offered to idols. They would offer animal sacrifices to pagan idols, such as in Corinth. This was very familiar. They would bring this meat and sell it on the common marketplace, on the streets, and it would need to be sold in, in, in pretty quickly. And so it was often at a discounted price. So people who came out of that felt like, man, if you eat that meat, then you're partaking in meat offered to idols, and that's like idolatry. But for other people, they're like, an idol's nothing. And, and eating that meat, it's a good price, man. I'm going to get a good deal. And uh, so for one person, they're like, man, that's really offensive. To another person, they're like, it doesn't mean anything. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> and, and, and in 1 Corinthians 8, he tells them, he says, listen, an idol is nothing. And so you, you have the freedom to eat that meat offered to these idols. It's, it really doesn't matter. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. But take heed lest by any means this liberty or freedom of yours become a stumbling block to them who are weak. That means like a younger in the faith person. They may be 20 year old as a believer. And they may be mature in many areas. But sometimes we can become weak in other areas. Verse 10, for if... Any man see thee which has knowledge. That means you, you know the Bible, you know the truth, you know you have freedom. Sit at meat in the idol's temple. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye, look what he says, sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So he starts off the chapters of saying you have the freedom to do this, but if it causes people to be offended, then you need to surrender that freedom. And people would say, well, that's not right because I have the freedom to do it. Why should I hinder my freedoms for them? Because you should be governed by love and not by knowledge. Does that make sense? So more valuable than you knowing you have freedom to do that is to keep yourself from that freedom so as not to offend them. Does that make sense? So love 
sacrifices. Verse 13, he says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Over the years, I've had people who speak as a more mature believer, and they, they fought for some gray area. I mean, they fought for some area that they felt they have the right to partake in. Um, and I always ask them, why do you need to debate with people over a gray area? Have you read 1 Corinthians 8? If, it, if you're debating with someone, then it's obviously offensive to someone. Does it make sense? Then who are you trying to argue with? Who are you trying to debate that with? Better to give it up. Well, I feel like I have the right. Well, then you can live that way, but that's a less loving way. That's a less noble way. And so he talks about that throughout. This was an issue so much in the early church. It was so sad. So fighting for some personal freedom. If you think you have the right to do something and it causes somebody to stumble up, you need to ask yourself, do I love myself more or do I love them more? Second thing that causes offense is pride. You know, I think Proverbs 16, 18 anybody ever quote that verse pride goeth before you know the verse pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall so so what is that pride becomes a stumbling block to my own soul i trip up on myself and we all we all struggle with that don't we it makes us argumentative anybody ever become argumentative in life yeah you ever feel like you need to prove prove your point yeah I, you listen to respond instead of listening to understand. You ever been there? Your wife's talking, but you're just building the ammo, baby. <laughs> yeah. You know, your husband's, your husband's explaining his point of view on something, and you're just getting ready to respond. And boy, when you ever been in those conversations, and you thought you really laid out a sensible thought, you know, that, that, that really, you know, there's, how are they going to come back in a negative or wrong way? I mean, they're, they're really going to respond right, and they respond with some argumentative attack back, and what do you do? You're, you, you interrupt them to fight right back, don't you? So, so this is pride. That, that's, that's not humility. You know, avoid being strongly opinionated. Think about the person who's strongly opinionated. Is an opinionated person a humble person? You know, of course the Bengals are better than the Steelers. Of course, of course Ohio State's going to crush Michigan this year. You know, there's a little bit more positive with that. It's amazing. Pittsburgh has infiltrated our church. I don't know how this happened. I know how it happened. All these years of Bengals being pathetic and the Browns were even worse. But, uh, but you know, you get into those kind of things. And, and that's all fun. That's all fun. But you know, sometimes there are people who can get so argumentative over silly things like that that they can break friendships. Or they can, they can really quench a spirit of, of something that should be honorable, of just a wholesome conversation. So, so it's okay to, to have opinions. I think even in the political realm, be careful of being too strong on some things. Stand on the truth, stand on righteousness, stand on Bible stuff. But, um, but be careful. Be careful how you navigate some of that. Um, Learn to speak with humility. The um, Bible says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So pride can. Thirdly, another way we can, we can offend people is being insensitive to others. 
you know, not showing we care, not having love and concern for people, somebody kind of pouring their heart out, and you're like, well, you know, thanks for sharing, and then you just move right on. You know, it's, if, if you notice in church someone missing, it means a lot to reach out, just say, hey, just wanted to check on you, see how you're doing. If you ever see someone not, that's not here, you don't have their phone number or something, just call the office, ask for Lisa or one of the secretaries and, and uh, say, hey, I was just wanting to reach out to so-and-so and you could write them a letter, send it to their mailing or, or call them or something like that. But um, someone's been sick, sending them a note, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, reaching out, checking on people. Don't, don't be insensitive. A fourth way we can offend people is being impatient, being short with people, not making time for people, being rude and unkind. You ever talk to someone and they're just looking past you? If I ever do that to you, please let me know. I, 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 I have tried my best to be intentional about this to where, you know, I know I'll miss a bunch of people, but I will take time for every person that comes and talks to me. You know, I, I will I will sit down. If you if you come to me and say, hey, you know, can we meet this week? I will do my best to make it this week, unless it's a, that crazy. But but I will of a schedule to where I can't fit it in. But I, I will do my best that week. Never never feel like your pastor doesn't have time for you, um, in 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 uh, or people at the church. Now, some I'm a guy. I mean, I'm all man. I'm telling you. I, I uh, and there's good with that, but there's also weaknesses. And I can tell you, I can be like focused on something, and um, <laughs> it's just embarrassing, guys, isn't it? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Your your wife is talking to you, and then she, I don't know if she sees a glaze. I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if it's the expression, but it's two things that cause terror in my soul. When all of a sudden I noticed she stopped talking, which I have no idea what she was talking about. Or she asks, even worse, she asks a question. And you're thinking, Father in heaven, I, I know you stopped inspiration with the close of the canon, but if you could intervene here, <laughs> I need help. And... Uh, it is, it is a, it, it's not an excuse, it, it, it's, it's, it's sad, it really is, it, it's just a sad thing. Men have one box. We can work very effectively in this one box. Women can have 16 boxes, they're like spaghetti, I mean, they're working in all these things, their brain, their own other stuff, and, uh, and, and my wife has told my children before, you know, just have patience, you know, he's, he's and no, my girls are gracious enough with me, they'll usually come over, hey dad, I'm like, oh, what was that, what were you saying? I don't even know where my mind went. You know, I was over here thinking about fishing or something. I don't know. I'm so sorry. I, or some tasks that you have going on or just your brain can focus. So um, thank you, ladies, for being patient with us men. But just know that it's, it's sometimes that happens. Uh, but just be, be, be patient with people. Second uh, Timothy 2.24 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto men, all men, apt to teach, patient. Uh, Learn to slow down and be more people-oriented than task-oriented. Make people a bigger deal. And if you're a boss today, learn to do that. Care more about the people that work for you than the work that needs to be done because if, if they're who they need to be, the work will be what it needs to be. Does that make sense? Um, 
be people-oriented, not just task-oriented. If someone needs to talk, slow down and make time for them. Make time for them. Um, and as a pastor, sometimes this, this puts me in a predicament because sometimes I'm like needing to be up here within like three minutes and I'll have four people that are talking to me between like a certain point of, and never like not seek to talk to me. But, um, but I have in my brain like said, okay, I can, you probably don't know I do this to you, but I'm just being real open tonight. Uh, but I will think I have 32 seconds I can give to this person undivided attention. I'll look you in the eye. I'll listen intently. I'll write down a note. But I know I only have so much time because I, I have to be up there. And so, but, but I, I want you to know I will make time for you after service if there's no time before. But as all of us as a church body, we need to be patient with people. Make, make people a, a, a valuable reality in your life. Care for the individual. That's why we pray at the end of Wednesday night service. Take time to do that. Number five, being too direct. Being too direct, not seasoning words with grace. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Some people live like a 20-grit sandpaper. If you don't know what 20-grit is, it'll make you bleed. That's the kind that you don't want to rub on the wood too hard or you will shave it down too fast. You know, each year as a Christian, you should become less coarse less abrasive. You should not be one who are, is known to rub people the wrong way. Well, I just tell people how it is. Can you show me a verse in the Bible where that is really an honorable thing? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, are you more concerned about what you have to say than the person you are telling? What are you, what are you more concerned about, your words or their soul? I've seen people be too direct. Even, even This can happen in evangelism, can it? Uh, learn to evangelize with questions instead of statements. That's why I say, you know, if you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? You know, when I evangelize and share the gospel, by the end of it, the person will tell me that they would be sinners, they would be guilty, they would end up in hell. I didn't tell them that, they told me that. And I do that through a series of questions in Scripture. My questions through the word, lead them to the Bible's answers. I get them to say out of their mouth what I wanted to tell them from my mouth. That's, that's, wis, that's the wisdom that we need to have in communicating the gospel. You could tell somebody, hey, you're going to die and go to hell, but better that you take them through the scriptures and let the word of God teach them that, right? And have the questions prepared to where you can do that. If you don't know how to do that, come to Foundations Table 1 and I will show you Sunday morning. And I will equip you with that reality. So being too direct. Don't rub people the wrong way. Don't force feed the gospel. Share the gospel. Pray for them. But don't force it. I, I did that a lot in my younger years. And I can tell you it did not bear good fruit. Number six is worldliness. We've all heard people say the words, I don't go to church because it is filled with faithful believers. Is that what it said? Yeah. Hypocrites. Or they share how they knew some Christian or Christian leader who offended them with some sin. And, that, and that's tragic to think that our lives could keep someone from Christ because we held on to some sin or gave in to some sin. You know, Ephesians 5.3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saints. Don't let it once be named among you. We need to, we need to guard our life from sin because sin can just 
Just devastate the work of Christ. Number seven is gossip. Gossip can, can, can offend. I've seen, I've seen where someone chose to gossip about someone. It got back to the person and those words cut very deep and that person isn't in church anymore. And, and you need to listen closely. If you're not part of the problem or the solution, one of the greatest things you can learn tonight is you need to stay away from that situation. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to tell you, you know, did you hear about so-and-so? And they begin to tell you. And, 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 and I know sometimes somebody could be coming to you and you're not expecting the conversation. But just know this, if you partake in listening to that, you partake in a sin. And, and it's, it's, you don't have to look for sin. Sin comes looking for us. And so just tell them, please, I really don't want to be a part of this kind of conversation. Just say, just say that. Please, I really don't want to be part of this kind of conversation. What that'll do is that'll help them realize what they're saying is not, not something that needs to be said. And some, maybe it needs even a stronger rebuke. But, but, but distance yourself from that. If you're someone who says this to me, you know, I don't know why, but people always bring me their stuff. They always bring me their gossip. Well, then, then I'm telling you, you've become a partaker in their sin. Because people don't come to me with their gossip. When it comes to me, I'm dealing with it. If you've been in this church long enough, you know how that works, right? Comes to preacher, preacher's coming to you. Because I'm going to be like, hey man, I heard about this, let's sit down and talk, we need to work through this. One of the reasons we have unity in this church is we just deal with problems. I deal with problems every week. You think I want to do that? Wouldn't it be nice to come up here and just preach? I'd preach all day long to avoid that stuff. But... But I love people too much to let that stuff go. And I see how fruitful it is. And so you, you, uh, you and I need to make sure, stay away from those conversations. And, and, and don't let those people come into your life and to do that. If, you're, if, 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 if people are always telling you gossip, then, you, then there's a problem. Um, Proverbs 6.19 says, they fall, th- these are, it says, these six things does the Lord hate. And, and listen to one of the things he hates in Proverbs 6.19. A false witness that speaks lies and he that sows discord among brethren. God hates that. James 3.2 says, In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, he's a perfect man. Because you can bridle the whole body if you can contain your tongue. James 3.5 says, Even so the tongue is a little member. Boasts great things. Behold how great a little matter, uh, how great a matter a little fire kindles. The tongue is not water, it's compared to a fire. You know, I don't know, what is this? So many ounces, 16.9 fluid ounces. And it's good, if I don't mind. Would it be nice if the tongue was like water? Water cannot duplicate itself. But you could take a little tiny match and burn this entire building down. Big difference, isn't there? And so, it doesn't take a whole lot. I had a conversation with some folks recently and they didn't realize how much damage their words were doing. And I said, you need to realize what you say can spread like a fire. And it hurts people. And it offends. 
And the Bible says in verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. It defiles the whole body. It's like a poison. It's set on fire, setteth on fire the course of nature. And, and it's incredible. It says, And it's set on fire of Gehenna, which is the Greek word for hell, like the, the, the worst of hell, like the, the, the hell of hells. It, it's set on fire of that. He says in James 3, verse 9, Therewith bless we God. We use our tongue to bless God, even the Father, and then we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Our, our mouth needs to be guarded. We can offend people with our mouth. We've all done it, haven't we? We need to guard that. We need to guard that. Number eight is offenses can come because people can just sometimes be too sensitive. Do we live in a sensitive world today? We live in a day when people get offended if you sneeze the wrong way. We do really need to sneeze. And that, boy, isn't that true in COVID years? That's you. And people are like, oh, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I've had people, you know, I've been walking down a store and uh, somebody has a mask on, you don't have a mask on, they're turning around, walking the other way, storming out mad. I had people outside like yell at me before because I didn't have a mask on. I'm thinking, well, like, I got football field away. You're crazy. I'm thinking like this. You know, sensitivity to the world we live in today. You must be politically correct. Let me ask this. Is being extremely sensitive a sign of spiritual maturity or immaturity? If, if it's like, man, I'm just, if you're always worked up, always something, always something, you know. It's every week, something new, something new, drama, 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 drama. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, nothing shall offend them. There are people I've known who should have been offended, and they just kind of let it roll. They're like sandpaper that's like 2,000 grit. Just smooth. You ever feel like that real smooth sandpaper? It's like, man, is, it, is there anything there to even, like, you really got to work that? A sign of spiritual maturity, it's hard to upset you. I know some Christians who always seem to get worked up, man. I always, always look at it like this. And I, this is what I teach people in ministry. Offenses are like balloons. You ever have somebody who blows a balloon up till it pops? What do you do if you're close to them? You back away. It, doesn't it make you nervous? They're like, you're like come on, man, you're going to pop that thing. You're, and, and they're like, oh, I'm not going to... You're like, oh, you know, it's just making you nervous. You're getting nervous because there's more air. It's just blowing it up. And you know what happens is sometimes people with offenses, they'll come and they're working through something. And, and let me ask you, are you a person that blows more air into the balloon or are you a person that helps relieve the pressure? Are you creating tension or are you releasing the tension? Does that make sense? You, you need to be someone that, that doesn't make the problems bigger. You help deflate the situation. Be a deflator. Be someone who says, you know what? It really isn't that big of a deal. Now, if it's something that's a major issue, obviously you deal with it and you don't want to. But, but my point being is remove the sensitivity. What's harder to pop, a tight balloon or one that has some leverage there? So, so don't wind someone up even more. Man, I can't believe they did that to you. Uh, man, if it was me, what I would have done, I, man, what are you going to do about it? I, I would never put up with that, you know? If I was married to that person, I, what are you doing? 
And then they're going to go home and they're like ready to pop. And then they're like, who you been talking to? Right? I'm telling you, you don't help people when you do that. You've just made them, the, you made them more sensitive. You need to say, hey, man, I know even if it's a big thing, hey, let's, why don't we just stop and pray about that? You know, the good thing is Christians, we don't have to carry this alone. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Let's cast the burden upon him. Is that good news? And then let me give you a ninth one. Bitterness and unforgiveness. Bitterness and unforgiveness. Satan can take the Christian salvation. I should say this. Satan cannot take the Christian salvation. But he can rob them of their usefulness. And cause them to be a stumbling block to others. There are many Christians sadly today not serving the Lord because they became a servant to an offense. They have been offended by something someone has said to them or done. And the result they became offended. This turns to bitterness. They lose joy. Instead of loving others, they have bitter feelings. Instead of godly speech and bitter speech, they begin to slander the person. It comes into their heart, then it comes out of their heart. Offenses that are not dealt with in people's heart always lead to bitterness and unforgiveness. It's 100% of the time it will lead to separation. 100% of the time, separation happens. Unforgiveness separates people. When someone has unforgiveness in their heart, it doesn't take long until they don't want to be around them. In homes, it can look like a husband and wife getting offended, separating. The offense grows like a dark plague, sucking the joy out of their heart. They become agitated and bitter against their spouse. Leads to embittered speech. They then cannot say anything kind to each other, bad-mouthing each other, even to family and friends. They end up sleeping in separate rooms, and if left unresolved, they end up divorced. And the root cause of the offense was that something never was dealt with. Forgiveness was never applied. Bitterness grew and separation happened. Does this ever happen among Christians? People get offended in church. It starts with a Christian getting offended at something someone says or does or some attitude that robs them of their joy. It rubs them the wrong way. That offense that is planted in the heart is like a bad seed. It grows. They begin to dwell on it. They ponder on it. They think about it. They begin to talk about it. I just can't believe they did that. I can't believe they said that. Can you believe what they said or did or how they acted? They begin to speak bad about the other person. And then it begins to grow because the unforgiveness is still there. If they see them sitting in their row or section, they purposely sit somewhere else. If that person's in their life group, they change classes. If that person goes to the first service, they end up in the second service. They work in the same ministry. They give reasons why they need to get out of the ministry. If it's left unresolved in their heart, they will eventually stop attending the same church. And the whole time they think it's the other person, but it's actually unforgiveness in their heart. One day they will stand before God and find out the real problem was in them and not in the other person. Let me ask you, do you think Jesus would ever say, have bad and, and embittered feelings toward someone else? Don't sit in the same row of them. You think Jesus would say that? You think the Lord would ever say, you know, you need to change life group classes. Don't be in the same class with them. Don't serve around them. Don't go to church with them. Well, if that's the case, then we're not going to be in heaven together, right? Anybody, um, you, you read through the book of Philippians. Philippians defined by joy. The, 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 the definition of, if, if you were to study through the book of Philippians, you would come to joy. 
What's interesting is there's so much unity and joy in the book of Philippians. And you get to chapter number four. I believe it's Philippians four. And he says this. And I beseech Eodicus and Syndicate that they be of the same mind in the Lord. For I have had people bear witness and he begins to go into the the vision that those two had with each other. Just think about that. Out of the whole church at Philippi, Paul's like, let me write down in the eternal word of the living God inspired by the Holy Spirit that one day in heaven their names will still be sealed in the word of God that they didn't get along in the church. Anybody want a problem with another Christian to be eternally remembered? Was it really worth it? Well, you didn't know what she did to me. You didn't know what they did to me. Well, you Odegas and Syndicate, uh, you guys um, messed up. Because whatever your offense was, the only thing the world knows you of are embittered women who couldn't get along. That, that, that is tragic, isn't it? And so, I believe one of the greatest assaults Satan uses against believers is to get Christians divided against each other in their homes, in the church. And, uh, and he knows, he knows that if a kingdom is divided, if a house is divided, it cannot stand. He wants to divide, he wants to destroy, he wants to disrupt, he wants to cause division, he wants to cause problems, he wants to cause heartaches. Uh, turn with me to Luke 17. Luke 17. I'm going to close out by just looking at some things there on this. Luke 17. Look at verse number 1. This is a big deal to read for you and I. Because, because we'll all get offended. And, and a lot of times we get offended because we probably think too much of ourselves. Can I say that? Yeah. How, how, how dare they do that to me? And it's like, really, who, who am I? If, if, they that are down fear need no fall. I can't believe they would say that about me. And it's like, well, there's actually a lot more that could honestly be said. Y'all with me? Is this not true? We're so hypocritical. We will say it about ourselves. You know, I'm such a mess. And then somebody, you know, you're such a mess. How dare you say that about me? Isn't that right? Oh, it's, it's kind of like this. You could beat your own brother up growing up, but nobody else could beat your brother up. I can talk bad about myself, but don't you talk bad about me. How dare you, wife or husband, you know, neighbor, somebody. Somebody, on, you don't know what they wrote about me on Facebook. Well, praise God, they don't know the rest. <laughs> I think Jesus would say that to us. Well, I'm glad they don't know what I know about you. Don't you be worried what they think. They be worried what God thinks. Amen. Now again, I understand it can be hurtful. It can be offensive. But sometimes it's, we, we just think a little too highly of ourselves. May I? Is there any places in the scriptures where Jesus says, how dare you say that about me? Right? Is there anyone that had more right to defend himself than Jesus? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So, uh, 
just give you uh, four quick keys to overcoming dealing biblical response to offenses. So I wrap this up. Verse 17, then said Jesus unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. What's that, what's that telling us? What were they, they, they coming, right? They coming. What do you mean offenses? Where are they coming from? Oh, they're coming. It's impossible. The word offense there is scandalon. It speaks of anything that become a hindrance to someone else, something that can cause them to be tripped up, a stumbling block. So the first key in dealing with offenses is just recognizing they're going to come. Secondly, know that they're dangerous. Look what he says next. But woe unto him through whom they come. Exclamation point. How, how, how big of a deal is it? It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. I can tell you that is one of the most potent, terrifying statements Jesus ever said. Most of us probably understand the Jews had a little bit of a fear of water. Uh, remember, remember the story of Jonah and Noah? Uh, water was kind of scary. And he says, uh, it'd be better to take a massive stone, a couple thousand pound stone, wrap it around your neck and die than to offend. The little one there is not just young, which includes young, because they're, they're young in the faith if they're young, but it means young believers. If two older Christians argue, you think the fallout hits any younger believers? Better to have a horrifying death. You ever had somebody do that? Would you rather die by fire or by drowning? You ever do that saying? So, I mean, that's how I grow up. I mean, we're always doing that stuff. We're out at the ocean. Would you rather die by getting eaten by a shark or by a bear? You know, you know. I can tell you, this is, this is, that would be a horrifying way to die. Wrapping a millstone. So, so you, you ever, when's the last time that you came to something that you thought you might offend someone on, and you thought, it's better that I die than offend them? Let me ask you, husband, wife, when's the last time you thought about the way you're communicating with your spouse could be a stumbling block to them, could be a stumbling block to your children, and that it's better that you were to die than to offend them in those ways? Is that the B-I-B-L-E that J-E-S-U-S preached? Is that serious? Is that a big deal? Yeah, it's a pretty big deal, isn't it? You all wonder why I'm preaching just one verse tonight? Yeah, because notice this. When he says, we're representatives of the gospel, we're here in in, in behalf of Christ, the very first verse, thing he deals with I would think is be bold be courageous go out don't let fear stop you none of that he says the first thing is make sure you minister without offending anyone you make sure that the way you minister is without offense (laughs) that's first on the list none of us thought that would be on the first on the list none of us we wouldn't have come to that conclusion. We'd have thought, that's the first thing we need to be aware of? Yeah, because, because offending people is a massive issue. Be on guard for that, friends. We all need to take heed. The third key truth, verse number 3, Luke 17, Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. 
You need to deal with the sin. You need to rebuke him. You need to go to him and say, listen, what you did was wrong. It needs to be dealt with. If he repent, you need to forgive him. Well, what if he sins like seven times in a day? Well, then forgive him seven times, 70. I don't know. Just keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. What should motivate us to forgive? It's not, it's not them. It's Christ's sake, isn't it? Because I can tell you there's nothing harder in our life than forgiving people. Just know that. They're, they're, know this the rest of your life. You will never deal with a harder thing than forgiving someone. 100%. 100%. We have people in our church who've had, we have multiple people, multiple people in this church who've had loved ones murdered, murdered, and who forgave the murderer of their parents. Multiple people. So what happened to you? We've had pe- multiple people who had their spouses commit adultery on them who forgave the adulterer and their, their spouse. And what did your coworker say to you? What did that person do? I just look at my life and I'm like, it's embarrassing. What would I get offended over? Right? And then I think, Jesus forgave me. How could I not forgive them? And then lastly, offenses cause us to depend on God. Verse 5. He says, and the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. You know why they said that? Because they didn't say increase our faith when they got on the boat to cross and the water got calm. They didn't say increase our faith when, they, when Peter walked on water. But they said increase our faith when it came to dealing with forgiveness. That's how, that's how heavy that is. And he says, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed... You just need a little bit of faith to deal with, 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 with uprooting a tree and casting it in the sea. And Jesus is not saying they can literally cause a tree to be cast into the sea or a mountain. He's rather stating that what looked impossible, like uprooting a tree and casting it into the sea, may seem impossible, but the impossible be, can become accomplished, which is forgiving others if you only have a small amount of faith. That's what he goes into in verse 6 through 10, and I don't have time tonight to go through all of that. I need to wrap this up for the fifth closure statement, right? You don't, you don't know how much I skip through my notes. But listen, how, spouses, how do you consider the way you live in order to keep your spouse from stumbling up as a Christian? Do you live and think about that in that manner, to give no offense in anything? Children, listen to me. Do you think about what you say and do to your parents that could cause your parents to trip up in their faith? When's the last time you thought what I say and what I do could cause my parents to stumble? Parents to your children. Christians at work, are you being a light or a stumbling block? So Paul tells us the first thing we need to apply as a representative of the gospel is to give no offense in anything that the ministry be not hindered. If we want Lighthouse to be a thriving church, it needs to always have unity. Amen? Amen.